prognostications about what Bitcoin's going to do, you know, just, and, I, and again, I don't want to get into a models debate, all this stuff. I understand that all models are wrong and models have utility and all this jazz. But when your average normie at the firehouse, which is what you guys talk to, right? When you tell them, well, Bitcoin's going to be $10 million in today's purchasing power in four years. Like, I mean, these types of things, like, I, I think they're ridiculous. I mean, you lose credibility. And by the way, you ultimately set yourself up or at least set the, those people up to be disappointed. This is the Blue Collar Bitcoin Podcast, a show where average Joe firefighters explore the most important monetary technology of the 21st century. We talk Bitcoin, we talk finance, and we talk shit. Hello, and thank you for stopping by. Strap in for an epic rip with Joe Carlosare. Joe likes to ruffle feathers. He is a lawyer by trade and completely at home with an argument that makes you uncomfortable. Honestly, that's what we love about him. He is not married to an idea. He is completely at ease, allowing the data to guide him. In this rip, we cover Joe's macro insights at length. The consensus view is that the recession is inbound. Joe makes a great case that this mystical recession could be further off than most people think. We, we cover some of the, the ongoing litigation ETF filing and why it may not be nearly as in the bag as most plebes believe it is. Overall, you may not agree with Joe's takes, but you would be a fool not to listen to him intently. Throughout this discussion, we are reminded of just how many scammers proliferate in the crypto space. The only way that you can be sure that your Bitcoin is safely held by you and you alone is by cold storing with a cold card Mark IV. CoinKite has gone to great lengths to simplify a very complex idea and allow anyone who is worried about custodial risk to take matters into their own hands and actually own their Bitcoin. We highly recommend you get elbows deep in self-custody. And when you set up a Mark IV, you will sleep like a baby knowing that you actually own your Bitcoin. Dan, I think the two of us have been more confused by no one else than Joe. <laughs> Carlos, sorry, you, dude, you, you confuse the shit out of me, dude. I love you to tears. You're one of our favorite guests. We look forward to you. And I'm not just buttering your muffin unnecessarily here. We look forward to talking to you. Although Dan has as a much as anyone to butter muffins. More I'm a than muffin most. butter. Yeah, I'm yes. a talented muffin butter. But um, we part of the reason we like talking to you is because you do confuse us. You're a bit of a contrarian. I confuse myself, you're a Bitcoin by the way, bull. for the record. So. <laughs> well, then, you know what? We're we're on the same page then. The, the other thing that's confusing about you, Joe, is your motor, dude. What, spectating you? You're you're on Twitter spaces every goddamn time I log in. You're a lawyer by day. You are, are up to speed, it feels like, on everything with markets. You're writing a novel. Yeah. I mean, Josh, it has to be cocaine. I don't it's know. It's either what cocaine. Else. It's either You're cocaine a, or Joe is just way more adept at chat GPT than the most no, of us. No, it's not. Because is, is it actually lawyering for Honestly, you at this point, it's, Joe? It's the biggest, <laughs> my biggest uh, uh, advantage and also what I call a disadvantage is I, I, I sleep very little. I, I, I actually I, I made mm. it a goal to try to get more sleep. It's like one of the one New Year's resolution I'm doing uh, terribly on. I'm yeah. doing great on everything else. But the sleep is awful and my wife hates it because I'm like grinding away at something until two or three in the morning and waking her up when I go to bed. Um, but other than that, like I've got a lot of things under control. Isn't that when the best ideas oh. happen though? When you wake up at two o'clock in the morning, you're like, wait a second, 
I should write this down. And then I fail to do it. And I wake up the next morning and I'm like, what was that great idea? The, mm, it's like the great ideas you have when you're the high. The stillness you know? like, and silence. You write those down and they're like, oh, that was stupid. Hey, guys, honestly, the stillness and silence of late night hours are incredible. Like they're mm. just incredible. I mean, I feel like today we're so accustomed to the bells and the dings and the guy calling you and you never get away from anything and you know something's breaking, this suit is breaking. You can't have really deep thoughts, even with yourself, right? Uh, so like I treasure those late night hours, even though they're terrible for me because I rarely get recommended you know hours of sleep. Um, I, I I mean, literally, I do my best thinking every night at between noon, uh, between midnight and one. Like that's like the core. I, I think it's an important point, though. You, everybody, you need to carve out time to think and ponder beyond just finance, life in general. For me, I think my deepest thoughts, three spaces during workouts, which is also an inconvenient time. I'm in the middle of a freaking five mile run and I have a great thought and I'm like, fuck, my phone's back at home or it's in my, you know, that's number one. Number two on walks in nature. And then three, my go-to is fire pit out back at night. Which is the same thing because I'm I'm up till eleven or midnight. I shouldn't be, but looking up at the stars, the stillness of the evening is one of those areas where where I really get profound, get cosmic. Ooh, Dan, I, I was say. I was a hundred percent sure you were going for taking a dump on number three, but <laughs> wow, <laughs> yes, that's where stars. Twitter happens. Yeah, that's, that's where, where Twitter, Twitter happens. happens. Yeah. Do you, well, you run a lot? Is running an area? Are you like me, Joe, where you're in the middle of a run and you? Something clicks. Uh, no, because running is when I really dig into audiobooks. So I have to, I have mm. to double, double time that. So I'm, I'm almost always either listening to uh, an audiobook or a podcast uh, when I'm running. Um, which, what are your, yeah. what are your audiobooks uh, of choice? Do you, do you, is it fiction? Do you listen to, what do you listen Everything. to generally? I mean, I, I try to, I th- really think fiction is important. Um, not only so I. because I have so much analytical, uh, material that I digest, right? Like I have to have a release and something about like, you know, the, the Stephen King book that just came out, fairy tale, those sorts of things. I have to do that. How many books is that guy on? Oh, right it's now? incredible. Is he on like 55 books? No, it's, I think that guy's like the more, most prolific author of all time. If you count all of his novellas, I think he's over 200. And by the way, he has another one coming out next month Jesus that I've already Christ. pre-ordered. It's called Holly. How the f- yeah. It's gotta be possible. amphetamines too, Josh. There's no other... <laughs> Acceleration. Cocaine. No, no, it's yeah. incredible yeah. how much you can achieve if you're always doing something, right? And like I I constantly get I, I'm actually trained myself like at this point where I get very upset and nervous like when I'm not doing something productive. Um, my wife yeah. says I can't relax. Like she's like, you're always talking to somebody, you're always writing something, you're always reading something. You need to relax. And she's right, right? So that's like why I gravitate to those early morning hours, you know, uh, midnight to two AM. But but honestly, like I feel if you do it enough and you're constantly busy and like in my line of work, guys, I have to account for every 10th of a minute, right? I bill, right? So to me, I got yeah. so good at like getting my billable hours done so that I have additional time to devote to my other resources. It all spiraled into all these other areas where I'm like, now I just always am reading something, writing something, doing something, talking. It's, I, I'm not saying it's good, it's good way to live, but uh, it definitely makes you productive. Talk to us about this novel you're writing. Oh yeah, I can't go too far into that, uh, you know, because I'm 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 going to save it. But it's a so it's uh, it's loosely inspired by some elements of Bitcoin and cases that I've had legal cases. It's a legal thriller. I am not the protagonist. I'm not cool enough to be the protagonist. But uh, there's more of a <laughs> his name is Joe. Yeah, yeah. There's more of a traditional. Well, you're out of Chicago. Yeah. Yeah. There's more of a traditional type, uh, you know, uh, legal protagonist that is uh, mixed and matched into some real sticky situations. 
information. And at the core of it is Bitcoin. Um, so it, I think people are going to read it. And, and my goal is this, like my goal is that people uh, enjoy a good story, like a solid story with good character development. I mean, obviously there's a great character arc for the, the, the people I put in there. But beyond that, what I want people to take away from it is I want them to sort of understand some things about Bitcoin you don't get through the popular culture, right? All you hear about is price, 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 right? You don't hear about how Bitcoin is stored. You don't hear about how it's sent. You don't hear about private public key management. All these really intricate intricate things that we geek out about in Bitcoin spaces and on Twitter about, like I want them to actually play a role in a narrative. Have you written another book or no? Is this your first book? Uh, this will be. I mean, I'm saying even just for fun, not published. Have you tried other I have ideas? Tr- or yeah, is this I have the- tried other ideas. I mean, like I was writing short stories and stuff going back to grade school, but nothing that I'm, I'm proud of. Or This one I will I will get published, right? I mean, that's the kind of intensity I'm approaching it with. Awesome. Yeah. I'm excited about it. And I'm excited because project. I don't think there's any real. I was talking with American Hoddle about this. There's like no real good. I mean, even if you throw in crypto, there's no real good crypto movies, stories, fiction out there, right? Mm. There's nothing. Like, there's that really... Yeah. Hopefully, uh, somebody makes an SBF movie. You know, oh, I'm SBF. sure there will be. I mean, there's going to be something on that. Yeah. yeah. I, I have a buddy, actually, who's a who's a screenwriter. He just uh, wrote and directed a film. It's going to be out. It's called Pools. His name is Sam Hayes. He has been... He's one of my best friends. Roomed with him in college. He is... Him and I have been talking for couple years about the idea of him writing a Bitcoin screenplay. And he is, he texted me about a month ago and then I saw him on a trip and he's seriously considering uh, embarking on that project. So shout out to Sam. Hopefully that uh, gets off the ground and we'll update if that's the case. Cause yeah, there's a real void of content in a space that could really use it. You have an immediate captive audience if you do it right and you do it thoroughly. And, and Bitcoin's money, right? So like how many interesting thriller ideas could you have where money is the goal, right? Heist movies, all these different things like with Bitcoin. I mean, I, I think it's just, it's a, it's kind of weird that it, there hasn't been more. Yeah. For sure. Yeah, it really it, is. The guy who lost the laptop with like a hundred thousand Bitcoins on it. I mean, that's gotta be, I don't think his story has ended yet. He's probably still digging through that uh, uh, that dumps that dump site himself. But when he does end up, you know, offing himself afterwards, there'll be a good movie about it. <laughs> <laughs> Josh, I'm almost afraid to box in a wild animal like Carlosari with a question off the top. Should we just let's just throw like it to you, Joe? To. What what what's on your mind today? How do how do you want to start this conversation, and then we'll we'll go from there. So I think you have to start. Um, the conversation with what's going on in the economy. Uh, so, I mean, and as much as I'm passionate about Bitcoin, right? I, I love Bitcoin, but I always have to step back and say, okay, here's where Bitcoin fits into the broader macro picture, right? And that's important because my belief in Bitcoin is continually confirmed by the mess that's going on in the macro picture. I have very different views, as you know, about than many of the macro uh, Bitcoin people, which is fine. We have great spirited debates. But like the notion now that we're sitting here in 2023 and you're sitting with rates, uh, you know, bearing down on 6% or within an earshot of 6% in the Fed funds rate. And you just saw a massive jump um, in tax receipts today. I mean, then you saw some economic data for the last couple of weeks that is continuing to be strong and robust. 
um, it, I think it would completely confound people. Like if we were on this podcast last year when we were talking with Greg or whatever, and I were to tell you, nope, right. the economy will be cruising along. We'll still have secular lows in unemployment. We'll still have a, uh, mm. a real estate market that is frozen, but uh, obviously prices, <laughs> Very few would have said prices that. are crazy. Um, you'll have stock market right. with the stock market will be within 5% of the all time high. And by the way, you'll have Jerome Powell saying that he's not going to cut rates for two years. I mean, just it would be awesome to go back in time, right? Because like I remember being in these spaces and really smart people like, uh, you know, I remember vividly talking with Lynn Alden and uh, she was asked a question, do you think the Fed can raise rates? And her response was, no, not for any significant period of time. Well, they're over a year now, right? And uh, if they hold them there, as they say, for another two years, does that qualify as a significant period of time? Um, and, and you have to wonder why. And, and we can, you know, as as detectives, right, like when you're analyzing this data, you shouldn't get tied into these narratives or tropes about here's how this works or here's how this. And every time the Fed raises, things blow up. You have to really approach it like a detective. You can have a hypothesis. You could have a theory or a prime suspect, but you got to finally dig under the hood and figure out what's going on. And I think that I'm continually trying to, you know, get closer and closer to what's really going on. That's what I want to talk with you guys about on this program. Um, so do I have the ability here to like share charts? Is that like something that, yeah, you, um, you can, but we, we, we've had issues that with that in the work? past, but I mean, I say send it and we'll try to sort it out. You afterwards. see the share button down yeah. there? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Go I'm for it. Try just for this one. If it doesn't work, it doesn't yeah. work. Right. Okay. Uh, let's see. While you're uh, pulling is. that up, I mean, I, I continue to go back to just the age old adage, more money is lost preparing for bear markets than actually in them. Oh, yeah. I mean, right. and, uh, and then there's a ton of truth to that over the last couple of years. It's like, but no, just wait. And and the timeline keeps moving out. So, oh, it's going to be next quarter. No, it's going to be next quarter. No, it's going to be next quarter, assuredly. Well, it's, it's still not guys, coming. I've sat you know? through major bear market drawdowns, right? Like I've sat through, you know, huge, <laughs> terrible gut-wrenching movements downward in Bitcoin. And at the same time, I like, you know, I focus a lot on like the macro data, right? And people ask me all the time, well, you know, if, why are you spending all this time on the macro data if you're not going to sell Bitcoin, if you're not going to try to trade the market, if you're not going to, you know, time it? And the reason is it's not because like I'm trying to look for a trading edge, right? Like I do do some li limited trading here on certain macro assets, but that's more of like, you know, for fun, you know, that's like, you know, 5% of my portfolio, the vast majority of my stuff, both stocks and, and, and Bitcoin is long-term hold positions. The reason I focus all on the macro spectrum uh, information, because I want to know how close we are on the progression towards a movement towards Bitcoin. It isn't because I'm trying to time and double my stack or things like that. It's because I want to figure out mm. like, okay, is this really significant? You know, is like, remember we were talking about the banking crisis uh, back in um, March, right? I was looking at it objectively and, you know, while it, it, it appeared scary at the time, right? I think like there was plenty of evidence to suggest it was a tempest in a teapot. It wasn't necessarily going to spill over and move to the Balaji route of, uh, you know, collapsing the entire banking system. There's just, just, you didn't see those issues right. systemic throughout the entire banking system. But anyway. Hey, Joe, before, before this chart, I want to just ask you a simple question. Yeah. Warren Buffett has said over and over again, he doesn't worry about macro. He worries about, you know, the specific companies, the moat that they're creating, and that's why he, his basic thesis is that macro is just so difficult and so hard to wrap your arms around. It's so complex and nobody ever really gets it right. And the more I kind of watch the, uh, from my perspective, I, I tend to think as much as this sacrilege to agree with Buffett in Bitcoin, <laughs> he, 
he seems to be right largely about macro. It's just so difficult to general. It's almost like weather predicting a year out. Well, there's so yeah. many variables in that. I, how do you? I would. What's I would your approach to like that? This when when Warren Buffett says he's not focused on macro, he's not buying companies and trading companies based on macro. Okay, that's a big difference, and people get really confused. And this is one thing I I rail against, like when you got the people uh, that are on these spaces talking about the end of the world and the collapse of Western civilization, right? Because people hear that and implicitly they think I need to sell stocks. I need to sell my portfolio. I need to sell my house. I mm. need to be in gold in a bunker with a gun and whiskey. And that's my only chance. Like to me, don't forget cigarettes. Or, yeah, right. And cigarettes. So, so to me, like that kind of narrative, I think is, is very, uh, it, it hurts a lot of people. It really does because it, it dissuades mm -hmm. them from buying Bitcoin at much cheaper levels. It dissuaded them from buying last fall because people were talking about the end of the world. It encourages people, um, I think, to, to think in a short-sighted manner when at the end of the day, even if things get bad from here, there's going to be something on the other end and you should be positioned for that and you shouldn't try to time it. Um, but for, well, it's also like a, it's also a fatalistic nihilistic approach more broadly. Like you should not be rooting against the major societal organization strategies. We, we, we don't want global poverty. We don't want rampant suffering. I mean, this is said in Bitcoin all the time, but it should be reiterated. I mean, you, you don't want to wish for the implosion of global financial yeah, and markets. Some, and, and anyone that does, I don't think understands how big of a deal that would be and how painful and sad that would be for humanity. Correct. I mean, and, and the thing that kind of makes me, sets me off if there's one thing is that um, I have members of my family, I've talked about this before, like, you know, they, they were convinced by the gold bugs and now they're living in, uh, you know, a much more uh, impoverished retirement because they put all their money in gold and were afraid of the stock market. They've been hearing about like the, how sound money is going to take over everything and fiat will collapse for 30, 40 years. Um, so to me, like, you know, those kind of messages, we really have to temper as Bitcoiners. But the one yeah. thing I'll just say is that macro is really important. You shouldn't discount it for understanding the world we're living in, things like demographic trends, things like where, you know, how, how populations are moving, the the, the uh, over indebtedness and, and pressure that's going to put in certain markets moving forward. But macro cannot be utilized for trading in the short run. And it's very simple reason why, because markets are dynamic systems. They're not linear. It's not as simple as Fed raises interest rates, markets crash. It's not that simple. If that were true, then every single person could just follow a very simple uh, rubric and make a lot of money in markets. But as you can <clears> see, in certain dynamics, when people think the boat's all going to go one way, it actually flips the other way because how people get yes. positioned yeah. moves it. It's a dynamic system. Uh, it's not one that's perfectly linear and responsive to uh, variables that in the macro front. One more thing, Joe. <laughs> we'll get to your chart, I promise. What you just said, I, I could imagine somebody sitting here, let's say this is the first podcast they're listening to that has to do with Bitcoin. Maybe they were interested in gold and they see these two things as very similar assets. So they hear you saying or denigrating gold as like, that was a bad idea 10 years ago, but Bitcoin is somehow a better idea, even though these two assets are viewed very similarly. Yeah, that's that. So how would you explain, <laughs> how would you explain that to that person thinking like, why, why is Bitcoin the better idea at this point than gold was 10 years ago? And how can you be so sure of that? Uh, very sure of it and very confident of it because Bitcoin is far more than the asset itself. Bitcoin is a network. It's a monetary network that will eventually supplant to the entire global financial system. And gold is not. Gold is a rock. 
right? Gold is an element on the periodic table. Gold is something that fails in the network that we need for 21st century commerce over the internet. And for people to uh, reduce and denigrate Bitcoin to digital gold, to me, Josh, that's offensive. Like, I, I think like you, okay, when, when, I, when, I, when I hear digital gold, that's what Bitcoin, I'm like, I, I want to sell my Bitcoin because there's people that do not understand what Bitcoin is. It is not a shiny yeah, yellow rock. I, that's not what it is. I, I, I'm it's, just saying, it, it, I think it's a very useful tool to help people, to introduce people to it, to help them understand what, at least at a very limited level, this is. I think that's a good introductor, introduction for people. And all I'm saying, is, I'm, I'm certainly not making that argument. I'm simply bringing that up to say, if somebody's listening to this and they had that idea that gold was great and they maybe don't think so 12 years later and now they're hearing about Bitcoin, it sounds like a parallel idea in a lot of ways to a lot of people. Yeah, That's the only reason I brought yeah, that up because I, I, I think that shows, can cause some confusion. I mean, I, I, I don't understand how a generation that grew up seeing the promise and innovation of the internet would not just use the internet. I mean, literally, Andreas and Antonopoulos did the work for Bitcoiners, the Internet of Money, like, what, is it seven years ago, six years ago? Got it behind me. That's like, that, that's I mean, literally and, what and, did it and, for me. And that's so so me you're telling edge. me, Josh, that talking to a regular person, <laughs> talking to a regular person, you're going to say, hey, I know you don't own any of the shiny yellow rock, but you should buy it because it's now going to work in a digital era. Instead of saying, this is the Internet for things of value. This is how we're going to communicate value among people. You don't think that that's more persuasive to the regular people that this is how we will communicate and share our experience and share our time, show what is valuable in society. And by the way, it is, it, I, I firmly believe it's not going to be solely about money. I think Bitcoin's network, Bitcoin's global network will serve other purposes that we haven't yet scratched the surface of. So to me, it's totally. a minimalistic, overly simplistic. I totally uh, agree. Parallel. But I'm just saying, I think that to a lot of the uninitiated who don't understand network effects, who don't understand a whole lot of the... Uh, the terms you might be using there that just may, there's a lot of people that still don't get that yeah. stuff. So right, I right. think that as an introduction, you got to find a hook somewhere. You got to find a hook somewhere. And then, and what was the hook for the internet? Go on chat rooms. I mean, nobody talk. figured that out for 20 years. It took like, it was like five years ago when people really it's figured gonna, that out. At least the general it's public. It's going to take 20 years for Bitcoin. It's going to take you yeah. know, tw 30 years. I mean, it's even more complex. Jack, All right. What he's saying so, is that calling Bitcoin digital gold is objectifying Bitcoin. There's so much more to it. It's like me saying your wife is hot and nothing <laughs> else, Josh. And you're sitting there going, no, she's got so much to offer on the inside. She's such a great mother. And I go, no, she's just hot. Mm. That's what we do when we call Bitcoin digital gold. There's so what, much what more depth there. What if I walked up to you? I just, I just like objectifying what, what Bitcoin. What if I walked up to you and I, and I said, uh, oh, this is like a, the internet's like a message board. That's what it is. It's a message board. I'm like, is that going to, what do I need that? I, what, what's the point of that? I, I, I call people on the telephone. That's how I communicate with them. Mm -hmm. I give them a ring. I mean, it, I mean, it's, su it's such a reductionist way of talking about something that's profound. And I don't want to make it overly simplistic. I'm going to explain how this thing is going to change the world. And for you to understand how it's changing the world, you have to put in a little effort. I can't just say it's a yellow rock. Yeah. And much the same. Okay. So back to your your fair point about the internet. What was the hook for the internet? We, we really had 
nothing to latch onto. There was really no handle. The thing was just so useful. Yeah, what, what is it? And that, so is effective. Is it the Today Show? The one where he's like, "What's that at sign? What's what is what is an internet? Mm. You know, explain to me." What it, I think it was. Yeah. Yeah. Is it Katie Keurig and uh, Kirk? Uh, I mean, that that's kind of the same discussions we have about Bitcoin, and, and I'm sure you guys have had firehouse discussions about this. Like, explain to me what this is. Why do we? Well, you got to put in a little work. It's it's a little complicated, guys. I mean, I, I can tell you certain elements of it, but um, you know, today I, I I learned something new about Bitcoin I've never learned before, right? Like, and uh, I mean that I've been involved in Bitcoin for for years now, and that's just how it is. I mean, it's just the the, the yeah. You got to start from that premise. Okay, sorry, we got way off, and I, I apologize. So, I love so it. we started <laughs> no, with the idea. Never apologize. So, so just to reset. We started, guys, with the idea of like, why isn't the economy responding? Why do you have these markets floating towards all-time highs? And I don't know if you could see this, but mm -hmm. I think this is a great illustration. So what you can see here in the red line, and it's, it's really stunning here, um, this is U.S. non-financial corporate net interest costs, okay? Net interest costs. So let's break down what that means. So you're taking out financials. You're using corporate net interest costs, meaning the amount they have to pay to finance their debts, right? The amount they've taken out. Right. Mm -hmm. So let's just figure this out. What has happened in the past when the Fed, and the, by the way, this black line, you see this uh, for the folks that are um, uh, listening, I guess not, not can't see the graphic. There's a black line in the bottom that says the Fed funds rate, and then there's the net uh, corporate net interest cost. And what you've seen during prior hiking cycles I don't know if you can see my cursor here, but um, in, for example, uh, you know, you're looking at prior hiking cycles uh, leading up to, you know, 2006, for example, is that when the Fed started to hike, you saw the corporate net interest cost, meaning the cost of holding that debt start to skyrocket. So what does that do? Mm -hmm. What does that do? From a practical standpoint, guys, what this means is that corporations that took out money are responding very quickly when they took out loans, responding really quickly to raises in interest rates. And you see this through several past cycles going back to, you know, the 90s, uh, actually, you know, even into the 80s. Um, and what you're seeing, why this time is actually different, is you see this rapid rise in the Fed funds rate here at the end, but you see net interest costs start to go down. So why is that? The answer is because companies, which everybody is well, you know, they're, 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 constantly parroting, there's so much corporate debt, there's so much consumer debt, there's so much debt all over the place. Well, yes, that is true. However, many of those debts were taken out at very low interest rates. Companies were filled to the gills with cheap money mm. in 2020, 2021, when the rates were near zero, and they they were like a you know uh, uh, an all-you-can-eat buffet, effectively. They took out as much mm -hmm. as they can. And that's consumers too, right? You, you're talking about almost 70% of all mortgages in existence right now are under 4%. So the Fed can hike to 20%. But in the short run, when companies, until companies have to roll this paper and have to actually extend out the maturities, they're not affected. Their bottom lines aren't affected. Again, this is net interest costs. So this directly eats into their bottom line. This is what's going to trigger unemployment to rise, uh, all these, these issues that we talk about. But the problem that many macro analysts, and I don't pretend to uh, uh, be a macro analyst, but I'll just tell you from my perspective, I think many folks missed this, myself included, last year, how much cheap debt had been taken out at very low interest rates when the Fed was beginning this hiking cycle and they equated it to prior hiking cycles where even you see even this little run up right here where you see very instantly corporate uh, 
respond very quickly whenever there's a hike. So this is the story right here. And by the way, this is not just the story in the corporate. I mean, I'll stop sharing this just so we could talk more. But this is not just about I'm gonna, corporate. I'm going to pull up just the fiscal side here while you yeah, keep talking. This is not just this is not just corporates, right? This is also individuals. Con, con, unlike to, you know, you you guys remember the? I'm sure you've seen the Big Short, right? Everybody's seen the Big Short. Do you remember mm-hmm. how many people yeah. took out adjustable rate mortgages, right? A lot of those consumers and investors and uh, folks that were speculating in real estate, they learned their lesson. They actually put out a lot more, a lot fewer arms into the space right now. They got fixed low rates, 2%, yes. right? And by the way, now that those rates are 2%, not only are they more profitable, but because inflation is the big boogeyman, they have a very easy justification to go to all their tenants on their speculative real estate properties and say, we're going to raise your, your rent. And then all those employees have a very easy basis to go to their employer and say, hey, I need more money because inflation's running at eight or 9%. And you don't have something systemically breaking among the American consumer. Now, where do you do, ha- where do you have pressure? You have pressure in the banking system, right? Because the banks who have to hold this paper, they're the ones who ultimately have to, uh, uh, you know, somehow deal with the fact that their paper that was worth, uh, you know, 50% more is now declined rapidly in value on a mark to market basis because of the rapid hike in interest rates. However, what the Fed has said is like, look, we're going to keep a general policy with respect to interest rates. We're going to say we're going to pedal to the metal, but no, no cuts for two years, is what Powell just said. At the same time, the weakest players in the system who are holding money good treasuries, we are going to support them where necessary through surgical approaches like the BTFP. And by the way, just to conclude here, this is exactly what the Fed governors were saying last fall. If people were going to listen to it, there's a famous uh, quote that I've posted about a billion times on Twitter where, uh, you know, I think it's Christopher Waller says, look, there's this notion now that financial stability concerns will cause us to not want to hike further. And we disagree. We think there are specific targeted programs that can deal with any issues of financial stability and we can still keep pedal to the metal with respect to interest rates. So hmm. your your main overarching point from the chart you shared is that corporates in the private sector are far less pinched than some might imagine with rates hiking because their net interest payments are down. To flip up to to flip to the fiscal side, back to a popular popular Bitcoin chart, which I'm curious to see how much you think it matters. Look at what I have up here. Very popular to talk about, you know, the fiscal situation and and, and interest payments. Mm-hmm. For the government approaching a trillion and, and blah blah blah. What do you make of the significance of this in terms of of hiking? Well, I mean, the fact that interest rates are are, are accelerating and uh, you know, and you're going to have uh, structural deficits, I think, is baked in and known. Um, I don't think it's not something that in the short term should cause a a panic in the market. Uh, there's you know been numerous auctions in recent weeks that have gone very well for the Treasury. They can still borrow uh, you know at, at rates, uh, particularly at the long end, that are uh, you know four percent uh, under you know a hundred basis points or more under Fed funds. So you know the notion that the government has some inability to finance its debt in the short run, run is, I think, misguided. Uh, but I will say that you know over the long run, obviously structural deficits are a real problem. But you know that doesn't tell you much in terms of investing. You know for the next twelve to twenty-four months, I, I will just say right. one thing: when when I'm focusing on you know those those charts about the net interest payments and the corporate payments, right? There is a limit to that. And the limit is actually when that paper has to get rolled. And if you actually study 
when there's uh, uh, maturities coming to market on junk paper, particularly in a lot of these zombie companies, the time frame seems to line up mid 2024 and then it accelerates through 2025. So there are trillions of dollars that will have to be rolled at much higher interest rates. And if the Fed is to thread the needle, okay, what needs to occur is you need to see inflation come down very quickly so that they can actually start to ease the pressure going into the middle part of next year. And that's them threading the needle effectively. They have to say like, okay, now that you have to finally roll this paper and there's going to be tremendous stress in the market, we need to sort of ease up so we can make it a little bit more accommodated. But you got to remember the Fed's policy right now says that rates are restrictive. Okay. Restrictive meaning above the natural rate of inflation. And this is something that's not understood and Bitcoin, Twitter, and, and, and many even uh, FinTwit spaces. But our society has a natural rate of inflation built into it. It's called R star based on the demographics and the debt. And R star right now, uh, you know, by some calculations is 100 to 150 bips below where Fed funds is, meaning that Powell has raised the rates to a restrictive level to cool off inflation. And the idea is that hopefully we can, by the time inflation is cooled off and we have to roll that bad paper, uh, that junk paper, we can get rates back down. There's a, there's a pretty big contingent out there that believe that this is going to kind of yo-yo back in maybe not to the extreme that something like Weimar Germany did back in the 20s where they accommodated and then they tightened and then you had asset prices like gold just doing these crazy volatile moves during that decade do you see this do you think that's a a possibility maybe a much more muted level or do you think they actually have this thing under control at this point? No, I, I think it's absolutely a possibility. And this is one of the things where I noted, you know, we were going to talk about certain things and like there's going to be some discussion about, oh, is the, is the bottom in in Bitcoin? Is the bottom in on stocks? Is the top in? And where are we going? 100K next? Like any of those sort of things are, I think are kind of silly, right? Like they're like, so so tomorrow, if UBI is introduced in the United States, right? What, what's the price of Bitcoin going to be? I mean, conversely, yeah. If there is systemic risks in the treasury market tomorrow, what do you think the price of Bitcoin is going to be? I mean, like there's way too many variables, in, in, as I said, in a complex and dynamic system. And when we attempt to reduce them to, well, always buy at the, you know, uh, the 20 yeah. week moving monkey, that'll always be good for Bitcoin. I mean, it's it's silly. So we, like, what you're saying is macro is just too complicated to really plot out? No, it's, it's not too complicated to plot out. It's too complicated to trade off. Of. There's a difference. <laughs> to trade off. Yeah, I know, I know. Sure. That's my point. I had, to, I had to get that dig in no, there. No, I mean, it's just- Yeah, like- I, 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 think you're, I think you're wise though, because what, what comes through in your, in your tone and your, your thoughts is that it, it sets timelines. It changes perspectives on what might- Like, for example, if ever- Back to the recession thing. I mean, everybody's quoting the same stuff, PMI, shipping rates, commodity index, yield curve, everyone's saying the recession's coming. And you're sitting there going, I'm not so sure. Yeah. And I think it's helpful. I think it's I think that's helpful because back to the main point of it's it's it is wildly unpredictable. And everyone's kind of predicting the same thing. And especially when some of the data, which you've brought up already, and some of some of the momentum is is moving in a different direction than everyone expected last year, it does make you sit back and scratch your head and rethink instead of just regurgitating the same line of it's coming next quarter or the quarter after, you know, I'm, I'm guessing overarchingly you are cautioning people against assuming that a recession is looming. Is that an accurate? Absolutely. So, so, and I'll tell you why. Um, I, I, I think, 
I'm cautioning that. Well, let me rephrase. I'm, I do believe that we're on our way to a recession. However, I think it can be a lot more drawn out the lead up like, okay, you know, they talk about the hard soft landing. Like we could be in the air yeah. for four or five more quarters before recession hits. And mm. in, in that environment, right? Like I'm not shorting Bitcoin or shorting stocks like that. I mean, that's, that's silly, right? I think there will be clear indications and uh, I'll pull up one more. I, I'm, I apologize, but this is really kind of, if I had to pick, I picked the top two I wanted to show you in the way of charts here. Oh, we love these um, charts. Keep yeah, slinging. So this is, yeah. this is the one other one I wanted you to see. And this is the, the lending standard. So to me, and, and this is again, one thing where I, I look at the world just, you know, respectfully in a very different way. Um, from I think uh, many in in our space, which is fine again, because I because I, I can be wrong, right? I'm, I don't have a monopoly on the truth, but yeah, and so can uh, they. That's why we love. That's why we love your. Taste. I'm just saying, you know, from from my perspective, I think what what I look at the world as I look at the world not in the context of what is the central bank doing. I look in at, at it in the context of what are commercial banks doing, because I think commercial banks create the majority of money out of thin air at a whim without any uh, sort of direct um, control from the Federal Reserve. The Federal Reserve can cut rates to zero. They can jack it up to 15%. In many ways, all that uh, will decide whether banks want to continue to lend is the bank's decisions themselves. So one of the things that I I study and always eagerly look at is uh, something called the um, Senior Loan Loan Officer Survey. Are Are you guys familiar with that at all? Have you heard of this? No. Okay. No. So it would be helpful too if, like, send us uh, if you, if you can send us an email. I'd love to of uh, of just where you find these charts. I just don't. I'm not familiar with where you where do you, where do you dig this stuff up? Joe's it's really like what it's I coming from eighteen thousand. It's coming from places. a lot of places, and and unfortunately, <laughs> you know, if you don't mind, you to just yeah, detail yeah, I'll, that I'll all Joe, out in like a long email. Joe, let for us, us latch onto your teeth, please. I'll take the left. Josh, I'll take the right. You, Seems like some decent, occasionally sour, but mostly good milk, right, Josh? You got to be careful if you find the right tea. You don't want it the wrong one. Can you guys? Who's the runt? That's the question out of the two of us. Can you guys see this one? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. So this one's a real fun one. So let me just explain this again. So on the top of um, the on the top, there's a a, a line graph. It's basically a green line, and it describes when uh, there's a. It's from the senior loan officer survey, right? It's basically taking data that is uh, polling data, right? Survey data of loan officers, and it is showing when they are loosening or tightening their lending standards. So as you can see, hmm. you know the, the the tightening begins generally at like the blue dots right there, and then mm-hmm. it it sort of peaks around the red dots. And what you can okay. see, at least it's, it's clear to me, and you can go all the way to 2019, COVID, right? You generally see that the, there's, a, there's a tightening of lending standards, and then there's a rise in unemployment, right? Because that is actually cutting off access to capital to, to um, uh, the, the private sector, to companies, right? Companies that want to keep their employees hired, they are told, we are going to be a little bit more cautious. Our, us the banks are going to be cautious in terms of what we're just letting out there. It's not a, you know, endless punch bowl. We're in certain environments. We're going to be careful about who we're lending to. So why is that relevant? Why is this the chart I, I picked out to show you guys? The, the, by the way, if you're not looking on, on YouTube, the correlation in this chart is sort of jaw dropping. And, and it's not just it's crazy. It's not just correlation, right? It's also, it's a leading indicator, right? Once mm. the lending standards, as you pointed out there, Dan, the lending standards start to rise unemployment generally starts to tick up as well, 
right? So what do we see here? So we see most recently, uh, and you actually saw prior to COVID, you saw the lending standards begin to rise. This was coincident to the yield curve inverting in late 2018, the blow up in the repo market, stresses in the system generally, and the widespread view in late 2019, if you were following the markets, that we were headed towards recession. And then what do you see? Then you see the stimulus money come in after COVID. You see uh, 0% rates. You see banks that are pushed, uh, have, have tons of liquidity on their balance sheets, eager and willing to lend. And you see then not only uh, the, uh, the, the, the standards drop like a rock right into 2021, where anybody, if they have a pulse, can get a mortgage. But in addition, you see an unemployment drop as well. So where are we at right now? You have structurally low unemployment. You have lending standards that have tightened precipitously in the last few months, and we just got more data showing they're tightening further. And in, again, maybe this time's different, but every single- What's coming yes, next. It, yep. It's coming next. But here's the key thing, though. Um, these standards really didn't start to get tight until Q1, Q2 of this year. So if you're measuring sort of the lag effect that we see in past occasions, right, that puts you into 2024 into 2020. Ah, yeah. and, and that coupled with the amount of stimulus still in the system, I mean, it, it, to me, it's something where I think everybody's been messed up on the timing and everybody was messed up because of a trope, right? They were messed up because we got this idea in our head that the only reason stocks and Bitcoin and all these assets go up is because of low interest rates. And I totally reject that because of the chart I showed you first, right? Which is the fact that it's not about the interest rates, it's about companies and how companies have to ser service their debts, okay? And as long as companies have low interest rates because they fixed it through earlier loans that were originated, they're fine. You know, you raise, yeah. you could raise, again, raise interest rates to 12% tomorrow. Josh, does your mortgage go up? Is your mortgage affected? Not is one your credit bit. card affected? Uh, my credit card probably is. I've noticed the rates gone up to like twenty five percent, but but I, you pay it off I mean, every it's month. Not affecting right? me, I pay it off every yeah. month. Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of consumers are like that. They have job security, like they think they have job security. They've got you know low fixed debts. They've got you know some some have home equity loans where which were at two percent. You know they're flush with mm -hmm. cash, and they've got assets that are really at high levels, right? So the asset themselves, that improves liquidity. When you have stocks at all-time highs and you have a significant stock portfolio, you feel pretty good, you can borrow against it, you you are awash in liquidity. Until you have a liquidity tightening, a real liquidity tightening, you cannot, in my opinion, have a recession. Do you think that uh, is also true? Does that follow and ring true for real estate right now as well? Because well, I mean, a lot of people have called like yeah. commercial real estate, obviously everyone thinks, oh shit, this is gonna hit the fan. Yeah, I don't, you know, operate in those waters, so I don't have any idea besides the fact that I see a lot of open commercial real estate. I don't know how that's moving, but as far as homes are concerned, I've noticed in my neighborhood, houses are starting to drop. Like I've noticed one across the street from me just went for sale like a month ago. They, I think they dropped it by like 40,000 at this point. And now they took it off the market because they can't sell it. They need to do some repairs or whatever, but I'm noticing at least in my little fishbowl that I'm in right now that things don't seem to be moving quite as quickly as they were. They're, At least it, not. it seems to be a stalemate. Yes, yes. Brilliant. That, that is exactly what it is. I, I would describe it as a frozen market. It's a frozen market for several reasons. Number one, it's frozen because the vast majority of holders of real estate, whether they're you know, re, um, basically even commercial holdings, they're fixed at 
low interest rates, like we talked about earlier, right? So for them to sell a piece of property, not only are they going to have to really want to go, not only are they going to have to sell it likely for a fire sale, right? But in addition to that, they're going to have to give up a two or three or three and a half percent mortgage. And right now we have a structural Mm -hmm. shortage in the housing market where the only transactions that are occurring are people that have to buy houses. They're relocating for very specific reasons for work, whatever. So they basically have to pay whatever the marginal rate is. They don't really have a choice. 7% mortgage, you're paying extreme high prices. And those, I feel really bad for those people because they're just, if I had to move, I would, I would be so angry because you don't have an option, right? You're forced to bid up because there's just limited supply. One crazy statistic, right? There are currently more real estate agents in the United States than available supplies of homes. There is not enough <laughs> homes in the United States for <laughs> every insane. real estate agent to list one of them. Huh. I wow. wonder how that chart's going to correct. Yeah. I mean, it, 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 it will correct when people are forced to sell. And why are people forced to sell? People are forced to sell. The number, if you go to the National Association of Realtors, the number two, one and number two reason people sell houses, death is number one. Number two is they lose their job. So yep. what do we have here? We have an entire population that uh, the baby boomer population that is aging, that is going to need to downsize. They don't have a choice. They don't want to do it now, but they will eventually be forced to over the next several years. So I'm I'm very uh, bearish on real estate generally over the next, not just quarter, two quarter, three quarter, like three to five years. Like in general, I think real estate's really going to struggle. But beyond that, Okay, I will tell you that you're going to have a whole group of people if the Fed gets their way, which their stated goal, guys, and this is so critical for people to understand, is to get unemployment higher. They want people out of a job. Jerome Powell, when he says the labor market's out of balance, what he's saying is effectively, I want more unemployed people because I don't want a wage wage price spiral. I don't want more demand for labor. Yeah. Wow, it's crazy. I mean, that it make it makes sense, but it is wild to to play that out. And we've said it twice already, but just look at your own behavior. Look at your own incentives. For me and my family to leave a house that we bought in 2018, it's good. It would take something incredibly dramatic, i.e., unemployment. Nobody is going anywhere. Supply is going to stay incredibly low until people are forced out. Yeah. So, so if you're looking at like, okay, how, what are some things rather than just sticking to narratives about, you know, the world's going to collapse tomorrow, what are the signs of what you want to see? Number one, like focus on initial claims, like initial claims are really key. If you see unemployment start to rise, that means we're on the doorstep of, of a recession. We haven't seen it yet. So like Last year, I was I was looking at the secular lows in unemployment. I was saying, what are these guys talking about with a recession? You, you Go try to hire somebody, particularly low-end jobs. You can't, every place I went to with my wife for dinner, like help wanted, help wanted. That's not a recession. What kind of recession occurs when there's a desperate need for, for labor? Recession, you know, like the old adage, recession's when your neighbor loses your job and depression's when you lose your job. Without unemployment rising pre- precipitously, you, you can't really have a, a real nasty, bad recession. Yeah. I mean, look at our numbers, Josh. The The number of people that want to be career firefighters right now is at like all time lows. That's amazing. It's And, and in our yeah. estimation, it's an this, astonishingly why good is job. That? It pays more, more than most people would expect. The benefits are incredible. Schedule's awesome. And our numbers, I mean, we're a pretty good agency, so we still have enough people coming in to, to breed competition and get decent people. But more medium and lower tier in terms of pay and contract 
they're having trouble getting bodies on ambulances and fire trucks. It's crazy. Yeah, you're right. That's not indicative of a recession. Trust me, when we're in a recession, our test will be full, in my opinion. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I hire associates and they, they leave in, you know, for more money in a few weeks. I can tell you when in a recession, you know, you're struggling to, to get a job. Like that's, that's, that's a recession, right? Labor force, you know, Lacey Hunt, I don't know if you guys ever follow any of his stuff. I, I love the guy. Um, he, he uses an economist term. He talks about how, you know, when these costs of capital are going to rise, employers are going to have to rationalize their workforce, right? That's the total bureaucratic Fed speak. But what he really means there is that like, you know, when, when push comes to shove, you're going to have to justify why you have a job here. Like, what do you do here? Like the line from office space? Like, that's how <laughs> recessions start. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, I want to pivot to Bitcoin real quick. Let's do it. We have had some interchanges where you're you're critical of overly bullish Bitcoin sentiment. Yeah. Uh, I know some of these questions you don't love about is the bottom in and where's the price going, but talk to us a little bit about your your thoughts on price and performance and and how that should be characterized right now. So I I, I continue to think just in terms of Bitcoin's price action and because it's such a small market, it is whipsawed in a very confusing way throughout this, the majority of this year. Um, you saw this pump you got from the ETF, uh, you know, filing by BlackRock. We can talk about whether that's, you know, fundamentally driven or not. Uh, but I think there's We're just a lot of, con- that. We're gonna get yeah, there. I, I think there's a lot of confusion, right? It's like, you know, does are, are the having cycle still a thing? Uh, is, is big money coming in or are they not coming in? You know, what's going on with the SEC and its fight against crypto and choke point 2.0 and efforts to um, affect the rails? And, you know, I, as somebody who counsels folks in, in the space, like there's genuine fear out there about banking wires being cut and access to exchanges being limited. Um, I don't know if you guys have followed, you know, some of the choke point 2.0 stuff, but it, it is... It's crazy. And some of it I can't talk about because I'm involved in some of these cases, uh, full disclosure. But, you know, like, you know, the, there's an arbitrary and capricious attack on quote unquote crypto. And the problem is for Bitcoin, it still gets lumped in with this crap. Um, and exactly. and it, it just it is what it is. So you have to be realistic here. And from my standpoint, you know, prognostications about what Bitcoin's going to do. You know, just and I and again, I don't want to get into a models debate. All this stuff, I understand that all models are wrong and models have utility and all this jazz. But when your average normie at the firehouse, which is what you guys talk to, right? When you tell them, "Well, Bitcoin is going to be ten million dollars in today's purchasing power in four years," like, I mean, these types of things, like, I I think they're ridiculous. I mean, you lose credibility, and by the way, you ultimately set yourself up, or at least set the, those people up to be disappointed. I'm not disappointed in Bitcoin's price action. I think Bitcoin's performing extraordinarily well, given the environment, given Mm. where rates are at, given the treasury market, all these things. But I also want to be tempered in those expectations. I will be happy as a clam when Bitcoin makes a new all-time high, and I think it will. Okay, I'm not going to pretend to tell you when that occurs, and I'm not going to pretend to tell you I know with certainty that we'll never go ever trade against uh, below 15K. You know, like th- these sorts of things, I think are uh, they're they're helpful. I think maybe for some people that just want to, you know, constantly try to go out there and and promote it, um, but t- uh, in a, in a way that to me it just feels kind of slimy. Like you know, it feels like the the the, the Richard Hartz who, who's in the news today when he's promising you know returns of uh, you know crazy exorbitant amounts. I don't want people to buy Bitcoin because of that, because I think those people will ultimately sell at the wrong time. They're going to buy at the wrong time. Yeah. 
They're going to buy at the top and they're going to yep. sell at the bottom because they don't understand it. I want to talk about the Bitcoin, what it actually does. And maybe that's not sexy or cool, but you know, maybe I'm not cool. I, I don't know. No, but that, <laughs> those are the things that create somebody that you know has an understanding and has longevity in this. Like I, I can tell you from experience, the two of us in 2017, it was a total clown show for the first year. Like we had hopped into the water around July and August of 2017 and just rode a rocket ship. And like we'd be texting a group of 10 people at the firehouse like, dude, is it going to six, 10, eight? You know, where's it going today? It was just a complete joke. And incredibly few shallow. of those people. Yeah. There's, there's probably out of the maybe 12 cohorts that hadn't, you know, invested or played around in these waters at that time. There's very few that had anything left by 2020. Like it, it was just a, a joke and most of them sold it at the lows in 2019 or, or whenever it was like three grand or whatever. It's a dopamine addiction. The point being is that like, exactly. Like it, yeah. if it's not a fundamental understanding, you really aren't gaining anything from this. The, there is just a balance here though. At the worst time. There is a balance here. I think that for me, the the line in the sand is timelines because I am incredibly bullish as I know the two of you are long term. At some point in my life, I think it's it's it is very likely and I don't feel any trepidation or I don't feel disingenuous at all saying into a microphone. I think based on my research and understanding that the buying power of a Bitcoin is going to blow fucking minds at some point in my life. And I think that that is an okay thing to share. I think placing a timeline on it is not helpful. And I think that sets up somebody who who's going to be disappointed and just not be strapped in for a long enough time frame. One thing we've been repeating on the show more recently is are you is your time preference low enough for Bitcoin? And it's a real question I think that needs to be asked of a lot of people before they click buy. We're not talking about 1 year. We're not talking about 5 years. I'm I'm moving that timeline out and starting to say are you, is the is the major portion of what you're accumulating in Bitcoin something that you're able, you're willing to leave alone for for 10 years plus? And I think that that timeline's moved out for me just as expectations have been violated. I agree that at this point, Joe, when I look at everything that's happened and what Bitcoin has accomplished over the last 14 years, it's absolutely remarkable. But a lot of us, myself included, were expecting way higher price points, say by 2023, and so I think it. it it, it makes you in a healthy way reassess what expectations are, what timelines are. And I think, I, I think it really is. I'll go back to my, my opening statement there. It's, it's the timeline that I think is the most unhelpful. Well, it, well you what, did two what, things though. Okay. And let's just reset and you can, you can roll it back. Uh, whoever's listening is Dan, not only did you not give a, a clear timeline, but you also said that you think the price is going to rip in, or I'm paraphrasing, but in today's purchasing power, right? That's different than telling people and filling people's heads with it's going to be X amount of dollars, right? There's a there's a yeah. guy on Twitter. He's not he's more of a crypto guy. He's not a Bitcoin guy. He literally, mm -hmm. and I'm not going to name names, but he literally posts a chart almost every day with some ridiculous like melt up thesis, like Bitcoin's going to be like 400 grand by like December. And, and, and I, I, I just got to tell you, like, I mean, that kind of analysis, it just makes me feel slimy. There's nothing that backs that. Could Bitcoin be $400,000 by, by December? Sure. But you don't know that. There's no way to model right. that. I mean, like, again, dynamic systems. And just to, you know, just one more thing is like, what, what I guys, I think the first time or the second time I was on your podcast, one of the things I always say is like, I go to bed at night and I put my head in the pillow and I think tomorrow I wake up, Bitcoin's at 500K, I'm going to be happy. Okay, like I'm going to be, but I'm also going to be happy if Bitcoin's at 5K because I know what Bitcoin will do long term. 
And I mm. honestly believe that. Like, I'm prepared for either because this decade is going to be nuts. It's going to be absolutely crazy. And for people to tell you how it's going to exactly go, uh, I mean, listen, listen, I don't know. You guys were around uh, before the birth of COVID plunge, right? I don't know a single TA yep. guru, uh, Furu on Facebook, any financial analyst. I don't <laughs> know anybody who said Bitcoin was going to dump to 4K and then proceed to absolutely rip to 60K almost in, you know, what, a 12-month period? I, I don't know anybody. Yeah. There's no way to model that. It, it, anything that people tell you that, oh, I, well, I can use this percentage of this or this percentage of bonds, and it's ridiculous because tomorrow two countries could wake up and they could change the game. And your model's right. not going to show and that. that. That's exactly why people shouldn't be timing this kind of stuff because there's so many unpredictable factors yeah. exactly as you enumerated there. And it happens to do this stuff in very short time frames, many times yeah. or the double the, the pump fake it did to 60 grand back down to 28, back up to 69 or whatever it did. I never saw that coming. I thought it was over after that, but yeah. The, the other thing too, about the slimy aspect and the, and where I think your point is really fair, Joe, we have to think about the competitiveness and incentives behind content creation. You have a lot of people on the internet that are looking to carve out their little corner that they can monetize. And it's really, really hard to do that. And everybody's fucking trying to do it. So there are some Hail Marys being thrown. I'm going to throw out this hollow price prediction at this date. In the off chance I'm right, I'm going willy woo parabolic. And <laughs> I forgot about willy woo. And, and, and if I'm not, fuck it. I, I have back. such a low chance of making it anyways. So you you do have some of these wayward social media content creation incentives where it it is it can be effective and sexy as you've said to throw out bullshit and hope it sticks to the wall and if it doesn't just fade off into oblivion. Well, it's there's a million of them doing the exact same thing and then the survivorship bias is what everyone sees like oh shit that guy was right so suddenly he's the guru of choice and he's the guy the smiling blue eyes on YouTube videos and everyone follows him right off the cliff. Yeah. Um, I, I, there's way too many things that interest me and that are consuming my thoughts than the price. Like, honestly, like uh, the price is going to agree. It's mm. going to do fine. People that are holding Bitcoin for the long term, it's going to be, it's going to be fine. You, you know, I, I can't promise you, you're going to be able to retire in two years, but I will tell you that I have highest confidence of in Bitcoin than any other asset. There's nothing even remotely close. And why, why the isn't that enough? Like, I mean, why isn't that enough for, for folks to, to gravitate towards? Retirement must be a lot less than it's uh, cooked up to be because we've got at least three guys at the firehouse who could easily retire. They they have their years. They've been there for 30 plus years. They just don't leave. I mean, so, it's a I mean retirement's to the fire overrated, service. Man. It is a testament to the fire service. People hang on when the literally we, we like to do math problems on the whiteboard, Joe, in the kitchen sometimes and, and, and mathematically demonstrate how people we're working alongside are literally working for free for free. And hey, it, being a fireman's cool. There's no there's hey, no way to replicate shift change coffee at a firehouse. We, I'll tell you, you that. Get, it's pretty you special. You guys talked about earlier Stephen King, right? Like and how he's he to, if you if you read up about him, like he writes every single day. He he's worth millions and millions of dollars. Doesn't have to write a single thing. He's got to love gotta it. I love it. But you know the, the old adage uh, is you know that that well let's use a Bitcoin term like proof of work. Right? Proof of work keeps you alive. It really does. Proof of work mm. keeps you alive. Putting forward hard effort getting satisfaction, keeping your mind and your body, you know, fresh and able to, uh, to, to perform well, those things, I think, I, I mean, I can't tell you how many older folks I've met, senior folks I've talked to that once they retire, everything atrophies, 
and and it, it's they're in a downward we see spiral. it every day every yeah. single day we i mean there's obviously a small percentage of people who retire find themselves something else to focus on and do really well but the vast majority of people just atrophy they sit in front yeah. of a tv they 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 don't have good friends they they sit by themselves in their apartment and then they call 911 because they're depressed or, or whatever have you you know tons of myriad of, of medical problems but it's a you're absolutely right. When people don't have something to focus on, when they don't have some shiny object to reach for, they absolutely atrophy and just disintegrate. Yeah, so the stoic. And sorry, Dan, go ahead. Oh no, no, no! I was just going to say, money only gets you so far, guys. That this is the other thing that does sometimes sick. I love Bitcoin. I love studying finance, economics, and markets. But I do so with personal caution because I don't want to be somebody that's completely consumed with money. Yes. I don't want to become Ebenezer Dan because, <laughs> yes, money does induce and create freedom up to a point, And that is worth, worth getting to that point, providing for your family, looking into the future and being responsible. But if your expectation is that because of X net worth, you're going to be a happier person, that is a fucking myth. And, and Josh and I have both said that. I feel like the, the the earning capacity we're at, I am at the point where it is hard to imagine more money is going to make me happier. And so I caution people against kind of that, that grandiose grass is greener on the other side. It's fucking not. Yeah. You need yeah. to be responsible with money, but don't let it consume your identity, your thoughts, and the entire you know makeup of your inner being. I, I couldn't agree more. And it's going to leave you wanting. I don't know if you guys are fans of Stoic philosophy um, or you know study. Love Marcus Aurelius. Oh, yeah. So you study. Are you going to quote meditations? Oh, I hope. Well, I, I'll I quote just book. generally. You know, there's so many Seneca. Uh, you know, uh, Epictetus. The, the 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 Stoics. You know, people think a philosopher is the guy who's sitting in a room and he's not living. Right. He's not experiencing. Anything. He's just studying a text or thinking about the nature of matter. The coolest thing about the the, the Stoics for me, all those characters, they really prided themselves on hard work and not just like the hard work of mental like study and, and rigorous academic study. It was actually like physical study, like stretching their body, strengthening their body, right? There's so many analogies throughout all the Stoic writing that they talk about, um, you know, fights with bears and gladiatorial matches. And they use these analogies and metaphors to communicate their principles. And it's for a good reason, because they want to show the body. They want to show the body who's boss and it's the mind, right? When I go for a run, when Dan, when you go for a run, right? Part of the reason you do that and you push yourself is because you're trying to use that proof of work to show your body, I'm in control here. I'm the boss. I'm, I'm going to show you exactly what's going to happen body. And you're going to listen to me. And that's yeah. so powerful. Like, I mean, if you it is back to what we were talking about at the beginning, right? Like focusing your day, not procrastinating, trying to be productive. If you hone that skill, like you're invincible, you're like superhuman. There's, there's yeah. absolutely nothing like getting a good workout yes. in right away in the morning. Your day is just, I, I'm, I, it's like the endorphin rush. You just have a huge, just a much better outlook on the day. You are just, you're in a massively better place and mentally. And I couldn't agree more. We just talked to Austin Herbert last episode, half the episode we spent on fitness and health. And I'm just here to say, if you're not prioritizing these things, you are not reaching your potential. I mean, even honestly, like, let's just take this podcast, which for, for a couple blokes like Josh and I, it's been a lot of work for a couple and a half years to do this in addition to a couple kids yeah. and full-time day jobs. This podcast wouldn't be possible without me working out all the time. I just wouldn't have the energy. I wouldn't have the discipline. I know, Josh, you feel the same way. Just to distill, distill yep. this small project down as a microcosm. Most high achievers you know, extremely high achievers. Now, there are exceptions. You take 
the billionaires, the CEOs, the content creators, even Joe Rogan. I was listening to him last night. I mean, the dude is an absolute savage. He cold plunges every morning, works out every single morning. And it's just to to divorce the mind from the body, you're not going to achieve your potential. I guarantee it. Even if you're high functioning and fat, I guarantee you'd be higher functioning if you were lean and mean. Dude, his cold plunge routine is like 34 degree water for 20 minutes. Like that's fucking insane. Insane. I can't even, I can barely squeeze my way through a cold shower. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we got to talk about, we got to talk ETF, about man. litigation. We got to talk about BlackRock. Start on either end of the, the spectrum there. Okay. So let's start with BlackRock, right? Um, and I'll give you my overall view. First of all, I have to say this so I don't get attacked in the comments, but I am, you know, I'm, I'm generally (laughs) cautiously optimistic about the prospect of an ETF. I'm not saying there's no chance. If you had a gun to my head today and you said, Joe, tell me the probability, because I live in probabilities. That's how I work. Um, tell me the probability of an ETF getting approved, um, in the next year. So a year from today. Okay. I would probably go with somewhere between 30 to 40%. And there's a reason for that. Okay. Because with the BlackRock filing, I do not believe anything in the structure of the ETF itself fundamentally changed the, uh, or altered the SEC's outlook on the market. And it also did not meet the test that the SEC wanted and still wants, by the way, in the appellate court. Overall, my view is that the reason the BlackRock filing was made is because I think after the oral arguments that were in the Grayscale versus SEC appellate case, which as you know, that was where Grayscale was basically suing, trying to argue that the order denying the spot ETF conversion was arbitrary and capricious. When those oral arguments were completed, many were optimistic about the prospect that Grayscale might actually win that the appellate court may actually say, we think you messed up here, SEC. We're going to try to direct you to reconsider this issue. And if you're BlackRock and you're monitoring those proceedings or any other ETF filer, and you think there's a reasonable chance that that ruling could come down, you want to have one in the hopper, right? You want to have a, a space in line with the filing because these things sit on the SEC's desk for a period of time. Many times they they extend them out time and time again. They, they uh, you know, don't rule on them. They just, you know, sort of punt for a while. They did that with the futures ETF for a while. It was pending for quite a while before they ended up actually greenlighting it. So I think it was an easy hedge for BlackRock to effectively say, if there's a reasonable chance that the uh, that Grayscale prevails, we want to have one in line so that we could get it granted. But let's go back to what they've said very quickly without boring your audience. What the SEC has said for four, five years now, um, they have repeatedly said that the reason they will not green light a spot ETF is because of a lack of true insight to detect fraud and manipulation in the spot market. Now, keep in mind, the SEC has conceded that their goal is not to prevent fraud. That's not their goal. Their goal is to detect it, to monitor it, and to be able to know when they can do an enforcement action against someone attempting to manipulate the price. So the reason they want to know how to uh, detect it is because they can actually file lawsuit, right? They can seek out the wrongdoer. They know that in every day in many markets, manipulation occurs, and there's no way you can fully prevent 
market manipulation. They they approved this, the futures ETF because the CME, where the futures contracts trade, is well regulated. There's a ton of uh, insight. They cooperate with the SEC. They will file any sort of suspicious activity reports they need to when there's attempts to manipulate, manipulate the futures contract. But they say the spot market, where the majority of it is overseas, outside the purview of U.S. regulators, that's a black box. We don't know what's happening on Binance. We don't know if they're trading against their own customers. Yeah. We don't know if they're spoofing. We don't know if there's all sorts of uh, malicious activity to, to to mess with things. So until so the SEC has said this is what we want. We want surveillance sharing agreements, which is just a fancy way of saying we want an agreement where there's data provided to us about trading on a regular basis. We want surveillance sharing agreements with a market of sufficient size. And in the appellate case with Grayscale, they said, what is a market of sufficient size? It is a market where someone would necessarily have to trade on, where they would have to be trading on that marketplace to uh, manipulate the price. Okay, so let's apply that to what BlackRock did. BlackRock did a filing where they have a surveillance sharing agreement with Coinbase and with NASDAQ. Okay, and that agreement shows you the US Coinbase exchanges spot activity. Now, if you were, now Josh and Dan, both weigh in here and I'll shut up. If you were attempting to manipulate, quote unquote, manipulate the price of Bitcoin, would you necessarily have to trade on Coinbase? No. Okay. No. So how does it meet the own the, the, the test the SEC actually put forward? And it said in the appellate court, they're fighting yeah. this right now with Grayscale. How does it meet the test? I, I don't think it would. But I, I guess the question I have is, how could it ever? How could right. it ever meet that? Because there's this is a global asset, as we've enumerated. Like you have Binance, you've got you, you know, OKCoin okay and a ten thousand other bullshit exchanges that are floating around in this world. How how could this thing ever pass that test? And then I guess in, in the markets that are relevant for ETFs that exist under the SEC's regulation, those are all trading uh, within the United mm -hmm. States. Yeah. So that the, obviously the other would be the easy other to comment pass. I so, want the, the other just to to push back a tad, and I'm curious your thoughts here. The Overton window is changing. Headwinds are changing in terms of who's who's interested. I mean, we have to paint. It's fucking BlackRock, right? We president even politically in markets it, it i mean even reading these forbes articles i mean it's article after article that suddenly flipped positive my point is that it feels to me as a dunce on the sideline yes that that may be the wording right now and th this filing is not going to meet that criteria but these regulatory headwinds feel like to me they could back to everything being able to flip on a dime what if well, this flips on a dime it feels like as the narrative changes and public perception changes and power players see this differently, this could could change rather rapidly. I don't know how you view yeah, that. So well, to ride to I just, just really quick on his comment, I think there's there's that part of it as well. But this game theoretical, the other, you know, other countries creating ETFs, putting pressure on the SEC. Canada's got a few of them. Other countries are creating them. At what point can they, you know, hold this uh, dam up? And keep plugging the holes before they have to kind of relax. Well, they'll, they'll, there will eventually be an ETF. I mean, there's no secret then. The question is, what's the time, you know, time frame again? And, right. And uh, I think you start from the premise that if you agree that nothing fundamentally changed in the structure, um, then the real only difference here is the name, right? That BlackRock filed it. And, you know, um, maybe that will be enough to make regulators uh, just suddenly pivot. Uh, I know that people think BlackRock is omnipotent and all powerful and can do whatever it wants. I disagree <laughs> with that. 
Um, I know cases where they've lost and lost badly in, in litigation. And I know actions filed by the government against them where, uh, you know, the government has been successful against them. So I don't think they're as all powerful Wizard of Oz as many people think they are. But um, putting that all aside, to answer your first question, Josh, you asked me, um, you know, how could that ever change? Well, it's you, you listed one reason. If you had the majority liquidity in the U.S. market, that would easily, and that marketplace, so say Coinbase had 90% of, of or not even 90, say Coinbase had 70% of all international volume, okay? And then they had a surveillance sharing mm-hmm. agreement. That would, I think, almost unquestionably get an ETF approved. If that was, if you had 70% of the even volume. Even though that could. You know, there. I, 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 if I'm a regulator, I guess I would just think, but that could change quickly. Because uh, people can withdraw those coins, they can move them somewhere else. Like there's, that's not like a, it's not like they have a monopoly on holding those coins once they're in Coinbase. They can flow, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? They can flow overseas or. It's the beauty that, of Bitcoin, though. Just curious. Well, like you're, how that's you're not, regulating it. You're regulating a slippery hawk. It's not. I mean, the it, coins. It's the volume. So if you had, you know, I'm sure that wouldn't be just for one day. If Coinbase, if Coinbase demonstrated a pattern for for years that they could, you know, had the majority of U.S. based or majority of global volume, that would be enough, right? Similarly, Binance, right, has consistently had the majority of spot volume, um, supposedly for the for last several years, right? So, if another way, if you know, Binance really wanted an ETF in the U.S., they could easily submit to a surveillance sharing agreement, even if they weren't. Uh, domiciled in the United States, they could say, "Here, here you go, SEC. Here's here's our books and records, which they are fighting tooth and nail for you not to see. Whatever that means, you can. I'll leave right. that conclusion yourself. <laughs> why they don't want you to see that. But uh, putting that aside, right? If you had a structural change in the market where a significant amount of those market players all banded together and had surveillance sharing agreements, that would likely be enough, I think, to meet the SEC's own test. However, to the point question Dan raised about the Overton window, sure, the SEC could pivot, right? They could change their viewpoint. They've done it in the past. They can say, no, we're not going to apply this heightened standard. However, what I would push back against with that is I would say that if that were the case, if their goal was to pivot and just suddenly approve a BlackRock ETF, why would they continue to press forward and await a decision in the SEC versus Grayscale suit? Said differently, mm. okay, why wait for potentially a very bad loss, another embarrassing loss for the SEC when they were going to turn around and green and give give approval to BlackRock's ETF? You could easily file a motion in two minutes informing the appellate court, we intend to change our view on this, this issue, uh, therefore this case is now moot. And you can dismiss it, appellate mm-hmm. court, and don't save us the embarrassment of losing in a high-profile case. So it doesn't make sense logically why they wouldn't do that if they intended to pl- prove the BlackRock ETF at this time. Do you just real quick here on that case? How long do you think before that plays out till its end? The the grayscale case. The grayscale case. We could yeah. get a ruling in the next several weeks. Well, I guess Check. the reason I'm asking is because maybe they're kind of holding this thing hostage until they see how that. Absolutely. And, and by the way, if, 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 yeah. if they lose, uh, then it could be fair game. They'd all get uh, approved. But just one, one thing about this, okay, structurally, everybody says BlackRock's getting the ETF. It doesn't matter if it's Dan, Josh, Joe, you know, Elmer Fudd, anybody who files a paperwork that is approved, okay, as long within reason, and it copies the same structure. For, for example, if BlackRock's structure were approved, anyone else could come along and file the exact same paperwork and get it approved too if they met all the criteria. In other words, that like you, SEC can't pick and choose favorites. That's not their role. They, they, they Similar to the futures ETF, once there was a futures ETF approved, it wasn't like that's the only futures ETF for Bitcoin. There were multiple futures right. ETF products that were launched. So the SEC, once they let one through, there's going to be multiple. So it's not going to be just one entity corners the market. 
Mm. Um, as we close out the BlackRock discussion, and this some of this was talked about in the spaces you were in with us the other day, and it's been mulled over a ton. It, it's hard for me to know whether this is the net positive, net negative, and I can see a lot of the pushback on the concerns that these big players entering brings. But it, it is nonetheless remarkable. Like it may sound shallow, but I, I mean, I remember when Larry Fink was calling Bitcoin an in, an index of money laundering, and now he's using words like hope and saying it can revolutionize finance. Whether he or someone on his research team, I don't know what the pivot is is for or you know all the the reasons why it, it is pretty crazy to hear him getting on I don't Fox I, and saying this shit it's wild yeah, it is wild from a historical perspective but just a couple questions and things to think about and I don't want to poo poo this or get people you know upset about it but but does Larry Fink own Bitcoin I guess we don't know <laughs> okay uh okay uh I don't think he does um but putting that aside does BlackRock own Bitcoin because BlackRock doesn't need an ETF to buy Bitcoin. Do they own Bitcoin with their their trillions of assets? Or I think it's billions, but I don't think they have. Is it, is it trillion? I mean, honestly, I, I don't no think idea. so. And and I, I see where you're going because the other the other pushback would be BlackRock enters every single market. Right. Right. So like they they, they enter every single market. They have their tentacles on every side of finance. So. Even if they think it's a clown show, which, which by the way, some of those comments would contradict that. Larry's saying some positive things about it. But once this market reach, reaches whatever they view as a significant, important size, they're going to enter even if they think it's a clown show. $180 billion under management, uh, their assets that they hold, not for investors, but their assets. Um, that my understanding is from all their filings, they hold no Bitcoin. But you would admit, it brings a legitimacy to the asset class that is still significant. They're saying nice things about it? Yeah. The fact that the, 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 the leader of the largest financial organization in the world is saying positive things about it when he was calling it a complete fraudulent joke. Yeah. Sure, uh, that's I mean, a huge narrative shift, and that's a big yeah, deal. It's a big deal. No, but I mean, what would be his ulterior motive? Why? Why would he want to say positive oh, things e about Bitcoin? It's easy, Josh. They, so yeah, he monetize. No, I want to hear what your yeah, thoughts he, are. He'd be able to monetize it. You're going to sell a product. I mean, if he gets the ETF, they're going to make a boatload of money. You know how much money Grayscale makes from the GBTC? It is <laughs> oh, absolute. It's, it's fucking ridiculous. It's sickening. It's sickening. So so why wouldn't? <laughs> Why wouldn't BlackRock say nice things about Bitcoin to have a bunch of people buy an ETF structure uh, that they control, that they can monetize, they get, they get the fees for? Um, and, and Damn it, Joe. I was hoping for a much more insidious dark no, plan. No, it's money. Here. You really just ruined that entire <laughs> rabbit hole. It's money. It's, with your logic. It, it's money. They want <laughs> they want to sell a product. I mean, to me, like, again, and this is just the world I'm in, like, you know, talk is cheap, right? You can say, oh, you have a wonderful client, Mr. Carlos. Say, okay, how much are you going to pay for, for the, to settle the case? You know, that, <laughs> that's the kind of, you know, uh, approach you have to take. Like, oh, I, I appreciate that he's saying nice things about Bitcoin. That's that's wonderful, right? Why do you, we like I, to get what I wish a reporter who would have done five minutes worth of work during that interview say, well, if you think Bitcoin is hope for a, a brighter future, which it is, by the way, um, why don't you own it, Larry? Why doesn't BlackRock own any? You own, you know, strip malls in r rural areas that are net losses for ten years in a row, just com complete, you know, uh, their their money pits. But you don't own it. You don't own a million dollars worth of Bitcoin on the BlackRock balance sheet. Yeah, it's a fair question. It needs to be asked.
Um, let's talk about the cases and let's do high level takeaways because I know you could get into the explanation of all these, but what we got, you know, SEC Binance, SEC Coinbase, SEC Richard Hart. I mean, I, I heard you, I think it was on with Preston. I mean, <laughs> the, the Coinbase case is they're they're questioning their right to exist, is I think what you said. I mean, this is this is a really, really foundational prodding into into Coinbase. It's a, it's amazing. Um, um what, 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 whatever, wherever you want to go there, but what, what's the state of these cases and what do you think the high level takeaways so are? So we knew that we knew the cases were coming. I was talking about this back in the fall and after SBF blew up, we knew they were working them and then Coinbase gets the Wells notice. And I think the big question at that point wasn't whether they would be sued. It was how broad is the suit going to be? And I will tell you, they could not, they pretty much couldn't have made a more broad suit. Not only do they go after their lending, excuse me, their yield activities, not only do they go after individual tokens on the platform, but they say, you are not properly registered as a broker dealer, as a clearinghouse, as an exchange, you're violating all these statutes. You never had a right to exist for, for these statutes uh, uh, per our regulation in the first place. Like you, you are running afoul of the law through, through existing in the manner in which you're existing. So the notion that that just ends with some sort of slap on the risk is possible. However, I'm very skeptical of it because of how sweeping it is. And I will note that they copied in both the Binance and the SEC suits huge sections of the of the allegations about you know what it would means to be a registered exchange in the United States, what it means to be a registered broker dealer. So they're they're clearly taking an approach that would apply to any quote unquote crypto exchange in the United States that you have really no right to exist under the current framework and uh, you should stop <laughs> operations immediately. Um, that NBD. Yeah. yeah. So, so by the way, just to reference back again, who was the surveillance sharing agreement that BlackRock put forward with? It was a partnership with between Coinbase and NASDAQ. Okay. So you're going to tell me that they're going to prove the BlackRock ETF when the underlying custodian and marketplace that would serve as the surveillance sharing uh, center does not have a right to exist pursuant to the same entity, the SEC, which is saying, we're suing you, telling you we want an injunction to stop exchange-related activities. But by the way, we're going to let BlackRock's ETF sail through where the underlying marketplace that we wanted to be sufficiently monitored is not appropriate and not appropriately registered. That makes no yeah, sense. Yeah, they're courting yeah. a part they're courting a partner with an absolutely massive broomstick up their ass. I mean, it, <laughs> it is crazy to think about the implications. Like I another one of your tweets and I think what you've been hinting at is just Ryan Armstrong saying we've had all these meetings with the SEC. And I think you're hinting at the fact that what the SEC has been saying in these 30 some meetings is delist everything other than Bitcoin because they're unregistered securities. And Brian Armstrong is pretending like it's been cooperation and it's just basically been the chaperone saying, get out of the fountain. Yeah. Get out of the fucking fountain. Get out of the fucking fountain over and over again. There is a, you know, um, sort of a culture in tech that for many years now has gone uh, really unchecked, which is move fast and break things, right? Do whatever you need to do. And then after the fact, you pay a fine or beg for forgiveness. And the problem, I think, or for the issue at this point is that for Coinbase, uh, they're saying no. We, we're not going to just let you off with a warning or let you, let you slap have with a slap on the wrist. Uh, for whatever reason, we're going to take the harshest possible approach to this. And by the way, guys, again, yeah. I, I got to be careful about you know talking about particular clients or anything. But 
this is not just the official stuff you're reading about with the cases that are filed. You know, there's all sorts of public reports. Uh, go go read the Cooper and Cook report, right? They detail uh, various institutions who have been told you cannot operate and serve crypto companies. You cannot provide accounting services. I, I would suspect that soon they'll say lawyers can't, you know, support some of these entities in the future, which will challenge. But the point is that like the efforts both on the, you know, there's a, there's the, the hot war and the cold war, right? And we hear a lot about the hot war, the filing suits against Binance, filing suits against Richard Hart and Coinbase. What you don't hear enough about is the cold war that's going on behind the scenes. And that is really mm. ratcheting up. Keep in mind, again, for anybody who's not familiar with this, this should shock the conscience. When, when Signature Bank went down, okay, on the board of Signature Bank was Barney Frank, okay, not, not exactly, uh, you know, a raging conservative, a former chair of the House Financial Services Committee, prominent liberal Democrat. Barney Frank publicly stated in his own view, being on the board of Signature Bank, that Signature Bank was killed because it was pro-crypto, because it was servicing crypto, and it had nothing to do with actual liquidity issues at the bank. Yeah, I think it's a wise caution back to being careful with bullishness. Maybe it's that when this enforcement happens at these bottlenecks, it could be a really big deal, at least in the short, medium term. Right. I think um, dude, what Coinbase did is very similar to like the Uber model of we're just going to do this. We know that, you know, taxi medallions are the official way for people to move around the city, but fuck them. We're just going to move in with our new app and we're going to send our drivers out there and do it. But Coinbase is doing this on a level that is, you know, an order of magnitude more official than the medallion system in Chicago or New York. Like they, they're yeah. just not, the SEC is just not going to look the other way. Yeah. Well, let me, case. let me you what? Know, paint the flip side. Okay. Um, because uh, you got to look at these things from both sides. And if you're a crypto lawyer on this podcast, what you're going to tell you both right now is that the SEC just got their hat handed to them in the Ripple decision. That the Judge Torres opinion that if it doesn't get appealed and stands right now is at least one district court that says secondary market sales are not investment contracts. What that means that is effectively all of the secondary market sales on Coinbase are immune uh, from a securities analysis standpoint because the buyers and the sellers don't know they're they're interacting with the original issuer. I think it's wrong. I think the logic doesn't follow through. There's already been a decision sort of softly criticizing Judge Torres's logic. However. You can't just completely write off, if you're a Bitcoiner, the fact that at least one judge has said that these things don't fit the bill under Howey for a traditional securities analysis. And we should approach it that way. I mean, I can't stand the overly simplistic, again, and uh, basically soundbite, everything is a security, right? Because, you know, is, do, you mean, do you think Dogecoin is a security? What about Bitcoin Cash? What about Litecoin? Like, these things aren't securities. They just suck. They're, they're just terrible projects, right? <laughs> like, like, yeah. they're, but, but I mean, you know, we kind of have to show a little bit more nuance in the community and try to just let people know, listen, I think the judge is incorrect. There's going to be a lot of cases on both ways. And eventually I think there will be an, a high level appellate court decision or potentially a Supreme Court decision that will resolve the matter, but that can take years. And in the interim, you could see another altcoin pump that, uh, you know, uh, unfortunately takes advantage of a lot of people what do you think playing probabilities is going to happen to Coinbase? I think Coinbase is in for a very long haul in litigation. Um, I don't expect this to end anytime soon. Um, 
I suppose it's again, it's always possible, but my guess is we'll, we will be talking about the Coinbase SEC suit well into late 2024 into 2025. Um, how I how I think it ends up, um, I think ultimately they're going to lose on some of it, they're going to win on some of it, and um, I don't think it's going to be a uh, it's going to result in the end of Coinbase. What it could ultimately be is it could prompt Coinbase to relocate overseas. Okay. Um, let's talk Ripple again for a second because getting emotions involved and I used to own a lot of XRP. I'm going to, I'm going to admit it. I fucking hate Ripple. I hate the project. I think it, I think it just from an, it it represents in so many ways, the exact opposite of what Bitcoin is trying to accomplish. But I'm hearing so many mixed opinions on what, on what this this ruling meant that you just hinted at. Was this a win for Ripple? And w- w- talk on that a little bit more. Well, given what you just said about how they're the opposite of Bitcoin, it was highly controlled. You, the founders, uh, I mean, there's evidence in the record that they, they pumped up the spot market, that they intervened to try to create a narrative. They told investors that you're going to get in early if you buy these tokens and then retail got dumped on. And then the, it's kind of such a perverse ruling, right? Let's just think about this for a second. The initial guys with tons of preferred access, that's the security. That's the unregistered security. Those initial institutional sales, that's inappropriate in the eyes of the law. But the, the, the dumping on retail because it was blind and because the retail didn't directly interact with Ripple. That's what's not a security. I mean, think about yeah. as the as and the marketing at retail. Yeah, you know? no, like the marketing. I, I mean, it's it's like a giant circle jerk of of ripping them off and then marketing it back to them. The whole point of of Howie was to protect consumers, right? How is it to how is it protecting? The, the general public to say those secondary market sales when you took the the money from you know mom and pops how is that's that's okay we, we're not going to have any issue with that we're going to have issue only with the sales to the billionaires and millionaires who had preferred easy access um, to me it's just it turns logic on its head uh, but what I would say this given the history and the facts that the SEC put forward and the amount of time and resources devoted to the case Dan um, I don't see how uh, you know, a tie effectively, uh, you know, win one, lose one, how that's a victory for the SEC. The SEC needed to make a bold statement and they needed a huge win. And to me, I think it's not a huge win. It's a, it's a more of the same. It's okay. Here's, here's a roadmap now for at least some people who want to engage in this kind of nonsense. Here's how at least you stand some uh, basis for avoiding liability. Cause you can always cite to judge Torres's opinion. However, again, our system works very slowly. And there are plenty of times where I had a great case and it got reversed on appeal. And there are plenty of times I had a, had a, a, a difficult case. I lost and we won on appeal and it came back down. It was successful. That's just our system, right? As it stands right now, one judge made a ruling and it's her right. She gets appointed by the president. That's you know her job, but it is not the final say. And it would appear that at least partially, they did move fast enough. They broke some things, and yeah, it's a little bit of a shame. Uh, it, it's a little bit of a shame just because I do think the market will play this out long term. I mean, there's just not a foundational use case. It's so vapid in so many ways and hollow. There doesn't that, need to be, though. 
And this is this is right. the problem. I mean, the the problem is that in the bull markets, okay, and this is just a market structure thing. It took me a long time to understand this. When you have a big object, okay, uh, you know, it's physics, right? It takes more energy to propel that thing higher, right? When you have a little tiny object, it takes a lot less energy. So the scammier it is, I mean, I don't know if you guys heard about this token that launched like a couple of days ago, this bald token that like is total a total joke, right? Um, it can move so quick and so fast because it's just a tiny little piece of crap, right? It's not, there's nothing there. Okay. Same thing with Hex. There, there's such a small market cap. There's no real money that a handful of people can pump it to the moon, suck in retail, dump and, and have their exit liquidity, right? The same is true of, of all, all these alts, really. I mean, the majority of the space, the majority of crypto is Bitcoin, stablecoins, and Ethereum. You got to throw Ethereum in there. You take out those major pillars of, of quote unquote crypto, what's there? You got a bunch of little speculative things that can't die but in a bull run, because of the ability to pump it so is so easy and so attractive and it's so easy to set up all these bots. And I mean, I can't tell you how many bots I have attacked me. I, one time I had like hundreds of XRP bots spamming my Twitter feed, attacking me where I couldn't even like refresh the app quick enough. I'm not sure they were bots. They, those people might actually be that stupid. <laughs> Yeah, it might be right. Or it might be both. It might be both. Like, like I mean, I'm just telling you that like it's such an easy scam to do because now we have we have a federal court that's saying, well, just don't don't directly interact with the, the consumers. Let your armies, let the XRP army, and let others do it for you on your behalf. It, it, it's really messed well, up. And the XRP, you know, army. gambling is addictive. The game of hot potato has been around for fucking centuries. I don't know what the, someone tell me when the game of hot potato originated, but it's a fun game because everybody likes to play until someone gets burnt. So, you know, it, it is addicting for retail, you know, just as gambling is. So it's not yeah. all people getting screwed. There is a large percentage of people that have stuck their hand in that fire and some will make it out and some won't, but it, it's, yeah. I mean, I said this on the spaces the other day, we have increasingly, you know, we want to be cautious. We don't know all these projects in and out, but we've started to lead more in our in our explanation for new people talking about the difference between Bitcoin and crypto. That used to be maybe, you know, 0.4 or 5, but I think it it's important for people to know that early because they're not just different, they're polar opposite. Yeah, I mean, I I yeah. I, 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 think, I start out from the pre sorry Josh, but I, I start out from the premise just okay. like I start well, you know, alt altcoins those are really for gambling. You know, that's what they, that's what people want. And let's be, I think you earn a lot of credibility just starting out there and saying like, yeah, they're really gambling. It's not really investing. There's no long-term use case. There's no long-term roadmap. It's all just a bunch of, uh, you know, Fugazi just, you know, made up BS. And um, if you want to gamble, go gamble. Like you could gamble on the boat. You can gamble on sports, right? You can gamble with your altcoins. I don't, you know, I'm not going to tell you what to do with your money, but if you, if you actually want something that could be revolutionary and change the world, you buy Bitcoin. For sure. And that's my experience too. Like even just in our small microcosm at the firehouse, guys understand, like the guys that are playing in these bullshit altcoins, yes. they understand that this isn't changing anything in the world. This is just simply trying to gamble and make some money. Whereas like 2017, there were people, proponents of XRP, proponents of IOTA. I don't know why that one came to mind, but there, <laughs> there are, people believed that shit back then, <laughs> at least in our circles, people believed that yeah. shit. Now it's, very recognizably pure gambling and that's yeah. fine like if you want to if you want to take 500 bucks and gamble that's on you you're an adult yeah um 
as we round this thing out, I have one more question for you, Joe. A lot of people love to talk about being 100% all in Bitcoin. Yeah. What's your take on that <laughs> proposition, especially for somebody who's maybe middle-aged, maybe has uh, not the longest runway to work with here? How do you, how would you approach talking to somebody about that? And what would be your recommendation for like a rational way to allocate your money in this crazy volatile decade we're living yeah. in? Well, let's start from the premise of like how you should allocate your money. And again, I can't give like any individual financial advice and that's not what we're doing here, but I think you have to consider all the variables, right? The way a guy who has a thousand bucks to his name allocates his money versus a guy who has 50 million is totally different. It's complete, even if they're the same mm -hmm. age in life. So you've got net worth, your net worth should be a factor in how you allocate your money. Your second issue is your age, right? And your third is your job. Your fourth are your family and commitments and obligations and you know whatever, whatever dependents you may have. And then the fifth, I think that's really key is emotion. Okay, so you've got five variables. So like when you, when you ask a question, which is a great, fair question, I, and it's, it's, a, it's a good one we should be talking about in Bitcoin circles, well, how, what allocation is appropriate? And we, we, you know, the old American HODL, which is hilarious, the 6.15 Bitcoin, that's what you should own. Everybody should own that. Like, you know, the, I get it. Like it's kind of shorthand, but the reality is like, uh, you know, you have to deal with those three, five, five different variables before you can make any decision. And, and to me, the most important thing I've said, you know, from being in Bitcoin now for, you know, more than six years, seven years, uh, I, I think emotions key. Like, I, I mean, there's mm. he who shall be, uh, who shall remain nameless again, uh, a friend of mine who was a hundred percent Bitcoin and completely lost it. Like, I, I mean, honestly, I think, uh, he, he lost it in a very public way. And, um, I think it really hurt him. And, I think, you know, he, he sold down to a level that was bright for him, God bless, but in so doing, it really scarred him and it changed his view of mm. the asset and it changed his relationships and everything. You don't want to go down that path, right? Like the most important yeah. thing I would say, you know, for anybody trying to get exposure to Bitcoin is you have to know yourself and know the emotions you're going to be dealing with. And then yeah. everything flows from there. 100%. Um, everything flows from there. I mean, if you're a younger person, you have limited dependence, but you also have limited assets. Like, I don't have any problem with you being 100% Bitcoin. But, you know, if if I have a massive Bitcoin holding, right, as a percentage of my net worth, um, and uh, my wife tolerates it. But I will tell you that, like, when Bitcoin is not doing well, like, I think it affects her more than it does me in some respects. Yeah. Um, so... You know, it's hard when you That's got a family and you got kids and you 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 are nearing retirement. I mean, certainly people in retirement, um, you know, if Bitcoin goes through a long winter, right, for several years, like you have to think about that. Are you going to be selling persistently at the bottom? Um, it's just to me, like what I like, I like to have other assets for a variety of reasons. One of the things to answer your question about why I hold a lot of stocks is because I do believe that the relative stability of stocks, even if it's a smaller portion of my overall portfolio, it makes me calmer during Bitcoin downtrends. It's a it's a crutch mm. emotionally because I've had stocks for decades now that I've held since I was a kid. And I also enjoy like, you know, productive companies and uh, studying the markets and seeing what what what, what is valued. And, and, and it's just a different beast, how the stock market works than Bitcoin. They're just very, very different. Um, and, and yeah. to me, like, like 
I think that there's value in that. There's value psychologically in diversification, but also from a financial aspect, like if, if there was a time where Bitcoin was on a fire sale and I had my stocks that were holding up relatively well, I would probably sell more. I mean, I have, this is something that's occurred. I've sold stocks at various points, which they don't go down 70, 80%, you know, in short periods of time, you have that relative stability you have dividends and I can draw down that position to reallocate to Bitcoin. If you're a hundred percent in Bitcoin and tomorrow, like you're hardcore Bitcoiners right in this podcast, you're a hundred percent Bitcoin. Every dollar you have is left and you borrowed more money. Like Michael Saylor was telling people to, to buy into Bitcoin. What happens if we wake up tomorrow and Bitcoin's at 5k, what are you going to buy? Going to take out more loans, like I mean, come on, yeah. like you, you have to have other, um, I think pots to, to go on when uh, pots of money or pots of uh, assets to draw upon in that situation. It, we've said it a lot. We'll say it again. It's all individual, but too much Bitcoin as a percentage of your net worth can mean less Bitcoin in the long run. Yeah. And absolutely, um, that's hard to that's hard to conceptualize when you just got started. You read your first couple books and you, you're beside yourself. You're so enamored with this thing. But, you know, be cautious, be careful, play out the scenarios. I think employment, you know, one of the five things you said is, is so incredibly important. How much job security do you have? How reliable is your cash flow going to be? It's yeah. Huge and you know what? What you said answered. about what you said about emotions is 100% accurate. And uh, I trend myself. I know my psychology well enough to know like when everything in me screams, I need to sell Bitcoin is exactly when I need to buy it. And then you mentioned stoicism earlier. If you're going to hold a significant amount of Bitcoin versus your net worth, you better read some Seneca and you, <laughs> you better read some works of the Stoics because you're going to need them. You're going to need yeah. to weather the storm with some kind of philosophy and you better be able to not look at the price for long periods of time to just center you go into those rooms i mean i i felt like i was holding people's hand i mean i was holding people's hands in november of last year like people were were really upset they were they were pissed off yeah by the way you've mentioned american hodl a couple times the last hour Love and a half guy. we have yeah. him we have him slotted nice it's going for good. the first time it's going to be really uh, good we're pumped it's i've said it's like american hodl is like that that best friend girl that you've had for a long time that you know you're gonna fuck at some point josh but it just hasn't <laughs> happened yet uh you know maybe this she is, keeps maybe having this a boyfriend hubristic for, you don't really care hubristic for us to say but i feel like this show is just built for american hodl it's funny though he's dead honest he's like we've got him slated for i think 9 11 he's like i won't remember so it's on you guys you guys better remind me a few days before Hoddle, it's on the record. We're going to fucking bug you. We're going to make Hoddle this happen. Hoddle does many things very well, and he's he's extremely bright, and I think he's... Uh, two things I'll just tell you you should probe into a little bit if I can make a humble suggestion. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Please no, do. Number Please one, do. his... No, notepad is out. His, his creative background, his messaging background, those sorts of things I think are well documented, but also just like his taste in art and music and movies is superb. Like we had long discussions about Christopher Nolan and things, and he's really, really good in that. In fact, I, um, he'll be getting an early copy of the novel when it's completed. Um, so like I if probe into that, cause I'd love to hear some of that guy's background on, on that. And I've talked with him on clubhouse a ton and he's super interesting on that, but, yeah. but also one thing he does way better than me and I'm totally jealous of. And I think part of it is a little bit of unfair cause he's been around a little bit longer than I have a year or so. Um, but, and, and he's got a bigger Bitcoin stack, but the, the, the thing he does really well is how to, in a sneaky way, 
is able to go into Bitcoin echo chambers and change the um, change the narrative, right? He's able to to challenge some of the echo chamber without you know getting into a huge uh, fighting match, pissing match with everybody in there. And I think it's more of the like elder statesman type things he can kind of do. But yeah. he's really good at it. Like I mean, there there are people repeating the same nonsense uh, again and again, and he will challenge it. And by the end of it, everybody agrees with him. So um, his ability again, it's sneaky. So probe into his ability to challenge Bitcoin dogma. And he'll talk about it. I mean, him and I have had long conversations about this because Love it. I think there are some things, he, in the, I'm just guessing here, but I think he'll say things, something like, there are some things that are just non-negotiable. You can't, you know, it's a lost cause in trying to argue these things, but there are ways to approach yeah. the echo chamber. Legend. We will probe. Yeah. We'll probe deeply into the hodl. Yeah. We're going to probe you, American hodl. Um, Joe, thank you so much, man. Dedicating an hour and 40 minutes. Yeah. Absolutely. After what we know it was a busy day. Uh, any handoff you want to give to yourself? Yeah. Um, the novel, your work. So we're, <laughs> it's, it's like the big short again. I'll do my second big short references. We live in an, an era of fraud in America, right? Like we live in an era of nonstop fraud, breaches of contract, breaches of fiduciary duty, people playing fast and loose with the rules. So my day job, and I do have one, is a commercial litigator. I love litigation, um, it's especially in Bitcoin. So if you're a Bitcoin entrepreneur, if you are a, a, someone who's worked in Bitcoin, if you have been scammed by someone uh, in crypto, um, I'm happy to, if you have a litigated dispute generally, please reach out. Breaches of fiduciary duty, breaches of contract. Um, I have a national practice. My firm uh, has resources to fight with the biggest law firms in the world, and we do. Um, so if you have issues or things that I could help you with, please reach out. Just Google my name, Joe Carlosari at Amundsen Davis, and I'd be happy to chat with you about it. If I can't help you, I guarantee you I know someone in the legal field who can help you. And uh, I do a lot of that. I have a lot of calls where I just, you know, I genuinely want people who have been taken advantage of to get proper legal representation. Because far too often, what happens, Josh and Dan, is that People get scammed and then they curl up like a turtle and they don't want to talk to anybody and they let mm, the wrongdoers yeah. go get away with it. And it's not right. Yeah. Yeah. They have to get okay. fucked by the long dick of the law. Yeah. Joe will pull that dildo out of your ass. <laughs> um, <laughs> Joe, we need to do this in person. If you're comfortable being around two guys like us at no, any point, but hey, one, um, of these, one of these in the future, we need to do this in person. Maybe we'll you we'll come your way or you come one of our ways and we'll do a little October little basement can, and can, beer. If I can make a suggestion, October in person, because market's going to be absolutely wild. You know, we didn't even talk about like some of the crazy stuff in the jet in Japan and the bond market. And we could, I know I had Japan. So I, I Japan stuff. actually was starred on here and we didn't get yeah, to it. Well, but, we, October is where things heat up, guys. Trust me. Oh yeah. Let's do it. Hey, I'm just curious. When you do pull that dildo out of someone's ass who got scammed, <laughs> what percentage of the money can they actually expect to generally get back out of that dildo? How much poop can you get it, off it of it? It all Joe? you know what it all depends on where the scammer's located, right? The best thing scammers ever do is get out of the United States. If they're in the United States, mm. um, there's a lot of tools and levers you can pull. Okay. So I'll leave it at that. I don't want to give too many tricks of the okay. trade away either. That's, yeah. Yeah, yeah, right. yeah. Gotcha. All right, get the fuck out of here if you scam somebody. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Joe. Tell your wife we appreciate you, uh, her giving you up here for the evening. Absolutely. We'll uh, see you in person here soon. Are you going to any conference? You going to Pacific Bitcoin? That's the plan. So we'll see. All we'll right. We'll see you there. We'll see you there. Cool. Thanks, see you, guys. See you, Joe. Yep. Thanks, Joe. 
We appreciate you listening. Let us know what you think. Did Joe hurt your feelings? Good. Now double your efforts to understand why that is. If you haven't checked out Fountain yet, please check them out. You can get paid in stats to listen to your favorite Bitcoin podcasts. Why wouldn't you be doing this? I want to leave you with a stellar quote from my favorite Stoic, Marcus Aurelius. The happiness of your life depends on the quality of your thoughts. Yeah, 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 yeah